Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we delve into the timeless mysticism of Rumi, the celebrated Islamic poet. Despite living over 800 years ago, Rumi's poetic wisdom continues to inspire generations of seekers, both in print and across social media. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, Professor Jawid Mojadedi hosts BLF's annual Rumi Lecture, unveiling what sets Rumi's poetry apart and how it maintains its universal and enduring appeal. Thank you very much. My name is uh, Akhil Ahmed. I want to welcome you to this um, the Rumi lecture uh, on behalf of the Bradford Literature Festival. Um, it's something that we do every year and something that we're really, really, really proud of and really interested in. And so what we're, we're very lucky today that we have for this year's lecture, we have Professor Javed Mujaddidi. All right, just got, I, think I, I think I got it right. Uh, probably, you know, probably got it wrong. But obviously, I mean, now, Javed is a professor of religion at uh, Rutgers University, and he is an expert in early and medieval Sufism, and has translated five volumes so far of Rumi's Masnavi as Oxford World's Classic Editions. Now, today, uh, what we're going to have is a lecture for about 35 to 40 minutes, followed by uh, a, a question and answer session that I'll moderate on behalf of Javed. That's okay. So I'm just going to hand it over now to Javed, who's going to give us a fantastic mm -hmm. lecture on Rumi, and, and then we'll have some questions. So over to you, Professor. Okay. Thank you very much, Akil, for your gentle introduction, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, I don't want to have my backs to anybody, so I'm going to probably just swiftly around. That's probably the best way um, to deal with it. And um, yes, Salam Alaikum, Eid Mubarak, and welcome, everybody. It's very... Uh, Good timing uh, this year, and um, I'm trying. To, what I want to do in this lecture is to provide something that could be um, useful as a starting point for discussion. To leave plenty of time for discussion. In that, you know, I, I ha I'm able to uh, read it through the Persian. I know how to situate Rumi in Persian, and I think um, there may be people who know Persian and uh, and can uh, uh, we can discuss uh, my observations. But for many people, that would, might be new, and uh, understanding how he stands out in Persian and what that might have to do with his phenomenal popularity in translation, um, that's, that's the issue that I'm exploring. And of course, in questions, we can, we can discuss um, anything uh, within the time limit. So I have a time limit, um, because it's a festival and somebody else is coming in. So I'm going to be prompted. I've, I've asked for that. That's perfectly. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> and I'm going to uh, be uh, compliant. And um, uh, but you know, outside we can continue discussions um, about things. So the best way to keep time for me, because I could just go on for hours, is to stick roughly to a script, um, and uh, which is number of pages that should be about 35 minutes. So um, that that's my my plan. And um, I shall um, start. So um, I don't really like reading, so I might go off script, but I'm going to um, keep within the, the parameters, the lines of the soccer pitch. Um, so some people might not be aware of this, but uh, in the 19th century, Omar Khayyam was the most widely read poet in English. 
So this uh, phenomenon of Rumi being the best-selling poet in the English language is not actually unprecedented. And uh, one thing we, people have observed, if we have time to do so, about the Hayam phenomenon is that uh, he was translated by Edward Fitzgerald, who knew Persian but chose to translate very creatively. He really reinvented uh, Omar Khayyam. And uh, so um, the popularity was largely because of Fitzgerald rather than Omar Khayyam, who was a surprising choice for someone to be a best-selling poet in any place, because in Persian even, he's not considered one of the greatest poets. Um, some people have argued that since then, there's been a kind of a pizza effect and people have appreciated, started to appreciate him more, but he was not primarily a poet anyway. And he was not a Sufi, although Fitzgerald did try to present him um, in that light. Uh, it's not just me saying he's not a Sufi, there are Sufi authors who write about who was and who wasn't, and he's never included. Um, so a question comes with Rumi is, so is Rumi's popularity a case of misrepresentation? Or is there something in the original Persian that corresponds to what makes him so popular um, in English? Is it that case like Hayam, or is it actually um, something that, that, that really is there, is there about Rumi? And um, one, one place we're safe in is that Rumi is considered, or Molana, Nevlana, I mean, he's not really called Rumi in the Muslim world. This is an Orientalist chose that name because Muslims have many parts to their name, and that's the shortest part. So um, that's, that's what we all know him um, in the English language as Rumi. But um, one thing to be safe in your knowledge is that he is considered one of the greatest poets in Persian language, uh, both in Persian-speaking countries today, but also beyond where Persian literature has been influential. In fact, uh, many of you may be familiar with uh, Qawwali, and one of the most famous Qawwali songs is the song Allahu, and that begins with poetry from, from Rumi. Uh, a poem which has the refrain Allahu is actually the, the basis and foundation. And then it goes on to different languages, not, not just Persian. So I want to begin just beginning with, with sort of uncontroversial big issues before homing in on some specifics. So when it, when it comes to um, big issues, really obvious, how did he state it about Rumi when you're familiar with, with the original, is that um, his uh, output was huge. He has a, a massive... Uh, Masnavi, this poem that I've been translating, and I've uh, translated five volumes of the six so far, which is, which is about 20,000 uh, verses so far, and another 5,000 to go, or about 2,000 now. Um, and uh, not only that, he also has published one of the biggest collections of shorter lyrical poems. Uh, his Divan, known as Divan Shanti Tabrizi, the name of his uh, master, has got 30,000 verses. Not, it's one of the longest, and both of these within about 25 years, the last 25 years of his life. Um, so you could, you know, that should tell us that he did have this passion to communicate through poetry. He was, you know, in the last part of his life when he was writing, he wanted, somebody who's producing so much wants to communicate um, his message through poetry. And then when you look at specific poems, you can notice that there are distinctive aspects of his poems that also confirm that he wants to communicate and make an impact. Um, so the most obvious thing there is that he very often addresses the reader in the second person. And in Persian poetry, this is not that uh, common. Uh, usually the, the reader is a kind of a, a voyeur, if you like, of 
somebody else's love relationship with a beloved or experience of ecstasy, but is not being addressed directly. Um, but Rumi does so directly in his lyrical Ghazal poetry. Um, so um, that, 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 that stands out, but also in his Masnavi poem. And um, there you can really show you something really big that he's done. I think a lot of people can relate to. I want to make this accessible. So he begins this 26,000 uh, verse poem with an address to the reader. Listen. And there's more to it than just that he's addressing the reader directly, which is, is a no-no in, in Masnavi writing for most poets. But Masnavi poems follow usually the convention where they begin with praise of God, praise of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, praise of all the other holy figures of early Islam, and then eventually, after hundreds of verses, they get to the poem. Rumi does not include any of that. It begins with listen. He doesn't even include what everything a Muslim does begins with, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, the, the basmallah, the phrase, which everything Muslims do, they begin with that. He doesn't even inc include that. And it's not a sacrilegious, a deliberately being offensive um, issue. The, um, the translator Nicholson actually puts it in his translation. It's not there in the Persian. And in the whirling dervishes, followers of Rumi, they have an explanation. The first 18 verses begins with, listen, Bishno, and ends with, wassalam. Begins with the Beh, ends with the Mim. They say, this is his Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. This is a deliberate decision by Rumi not to include the phrase, but to begin with the song of the reed. And uh, the, what does that do? What is the effect of that? Well, rather than beginning at a really formidably high place and hundreds of verses getting down to the level of the reader, he immediately is going to the reader, even skipping the Bismillahirrahmanirrahim and putting something else, Song of the Flute, which at that time was a, a modest, humble kind of instrument and not an uh, exotic, uh, esoteric um, instrument that symbolically it's become today. Uh, so he's coming, starting at the level of, of the reader in a very deliberate way, breaking, breaking all conventions. With his Ghazal poems, he has many poems which begin with addressing the readers directly. O lovers, O lovers, a ashikhan, a ashikhan. There's a number of poems be, be beginning um, in that way. And um, I, he, um, in Ghazal poetry, this is not considered great, great style to be too direct. And uh, he also talks about subjects that are not within the very limited repertoire of Ghazal poetry. The Ghazal lyrical form usually is about convivial gatherings, the wine cup uh, server, and uh, the unrequited love from the beloved. Usually it's around those themes, sometimes nature. Rumi has uh, uh, writes about so many different things, including one that's quite topical this week. He has a fa very famous ghazal, which uh, begins, There's people who've gone on the hajj, where are you going? The beloved is right here, come back, come back. The whole ghazal is, is actually about the, it's a kind of a critique, I suppose, of people going on the, the hajj. I've, this is one that's just showing the form of the ghazal with kind of a meter and rhyme. Um, but, um, you know, Hajj-bound pilgrims, where are you? Where are you? Your beloved's here. Come back without ado. Um, why make yourself so dizzy in the desert? God's here, your next-door neighbor, if you but knew. If you should see the beloved's formless face, you'd then become the Kaaba, 
and its lord too. You've traveled to that house a dozen times, reach your own house's roof, this would be new. If you desire to see the soul's house now, first clear its mirror of rust that blocks the view. That house is fine and you've described its features, share signs now of its lord if you can do. If you've come from the garden, show its flowers, if from God's ocean, pearls to prove it's true. Despite all this, may your toil be rewarded. It's just a shame your treasure's veiled by you. It's, it's a, a bold, crit, uh, radical critique. It's not what you would expect out of one of the pillars of Islam, ritual uh, of the Hajj. Uh, so as well as being bold in his subversive uh, changes in form, the message is, is bold as well, as, as you would expect. This form is content. It's not something that can, can be so separate that you would have a radical form and then have a very conventional uh, content. It's something that you shouldn't be ex expecting. Um, and, uh, and Rumi uh, lives up to this. It, it's also apparent in what he avoids in his ghazals. So um, what I want to say here is that Hafez, who's also very well known in English translation, though I, you know, we could, it's not for this discussion, but the translations that are popular, the Dinsky, they, they have no relation to, to Hafez, I should warn you. Barak's translation, I'm going to say, they do have a relation to, to the Rumi. Ladinsky's translation of Hafez have no relation. He believes he's channeling Hafez. In fact, he's probably channeling Meher Baba, who was his guru. Um, but um, that's, that's another story. Uh, but Hafez, in, if there are any people who are familiar with the Persian tradition of Hafez, but uh, his uh, poetry is used for bibliomancy. People will, they have a system of finding a verse of Hafez which will tell the future for them. And if you know that the, the short horoscopes you sometimes get in free newspapers, they have a skill in writing in an ambiguous way that everybody can read something into it and say, well, that's, that's what's meant for me. I'm, I'm a Cancerian or, or, or whatever. Um, well, Hafez writes in a very ambiguous style and multi-layered. So you can read Hafez in many different ways. So his, his divan is the one that's used for uh, Fala Hafez. You can even, online you can do it, Fala Hafez. There are websites that do it, it's so big. Rumi's poetry will be useless for this because he's not interested in ambiguity. He's not interested in having you think about one line for a day like you, do, you could do with Hafez. He wants to make an impact now to, to hit you in the gut, not to entertain your brain or you know, um, keep, get you intellectually thinking about it. And, and this is a deliberate decision. He, he has so many poems. He has written some like that, but his preference is, is, is not to, to write that way. Um, he was trained as a preacher before he became a poet. And I think that might have something to do with him wanting to make an impact now and not write in this ambiguous way that poets like Hafez write. And Hafez, for instance, you have um, Marxists and mullahs all love Hafez and read him in their own way. And they'll argue about it for hours that that's what Hafez means. With Rumi, you would not get so much. I, I was once asked by a, an Iranian press for selections of Rumi. Um, and uh, I sent them some selections, and then they said to me, oh, we didn't realize you were so religious. And I, I, <laughs> I was su su surprised, but I think that, that press was not interested in anything that mentions God. Um, and, uh, uh, but Hafez, you can read him and say, well, he, there's nothing religious in Hafez, or you can read him and say he was a great mystic. The um, Naqshbandi Sufi Jami writes in his collection of biographies that uh, we don't know if he was a Sufi Hafez, but we use his poetry for our worship. So um, he has that ambiguous position, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's quite common in, and it gets even more so in Sabke Hindi, the kind of poets like Beidel, but uh, Rumi is not interested in ambiguity. He wants to have an impact. Um, 
he also writes in a very experimental way. Um, and I think that's to do with him wanting to be entertaining and keep people engaged. So one obvious thing is that uh, in his Masnavi, his narratives, he will digress from the narrative at will and usually address the reader um, and then go back to the narrative later. He doesn't just continue and, and like he's telling you a story, you can anticipate what's going on and sort of um, lose focus a bit and just get into a lull waiting like a bedtime story. He's, he won't let you do that. He'll break it up and confront you. And some people have said that he's imitating the Quran, which doesn't tend to give very long narratives, but tends to, to break up and, and return to the reader again and may try to make an impact on you rather than just tell you a story. Um, another um, aspect that I think is, is important to know about Rumi is that part of his experiment is to write in almost childlike style. So there is a poem that um, it might not come through so easily in many English translations. It's very popular in Persian. Uh, it begins, Yar mara, qar mara, ishke jigar, qar mara, yar tui, qar tui, khaje negahdar mara. You might notice nearly every word is involved in a rhyme, and there's so many internal rhymes in this poem. But the big thing about it is that it's, it's written like a child's poem. I have a beloved, I have a cave, heart-wrenching love lives, fills me. You are that beloved, you are that cave, master, take care of me. You are Noah, you are spirit, the conqueror and the conquered. You are the breast opened up to the secrets in me. You are the light, you are the last day's trumpet, you are Mansur's fortune. Nur tui, sur tui, dawlati Mansur tui. You are the bird of Mount Sinai, the one wounded by your beak is me. Um, you are the drop, you are the ocean, you are grace, you are wrath, you are sugar, you are poison, please stop harming me. And so on. You are, it's, it's almost two, a two-verb poem. Um, there are a couple of other verses occasionally used in there, but you are, and then repetition, another no-no in Ghazals, where usually they're very pithy and not a word is wasted. Rumi is, it's like half the poem is repeating you are. Uh, when you're listening in Persian to poetry, sometimes you need to wait till the last line to know who the poet is, because people write in a conventional style. With Rumi, you can usually tell by the first line, oh, no one else would write like that. No one else would write a poem where you repeat you are. It's actually 29 times in, in this ghazal. Uh, it's just, uh, um, so then the question is, well, well, you know, why is he doing something like that? And again, this, this desire to have an impact, to be direct, explicit, and uh, not in an intellectual way, but in a more of an emotional and spiritual impact on the reader. I think it's, it's obvious by these decisions that, that he's making. Because he could, he could write, he's written some very sophisticated, what we call macaronic, and multilingual poetry, which are just incredible, including Quranic exegesis, one verse, one hemistitch in Arabic, the next one in Persian interpreting, and so on, line after line of a poem, which I don't know if other poets like Hafiz would even be able to do. But he chooses to write, you are this, you are that, um, for his own purposes. Um, and we, we know from his biography that he left scholarship himself. The meeting with, with Shams Tabrizi, most of the stories involve something to do with knowledge beyond books, like books, you know, miraculously being uh, um, saved from fire or water and so on. And he even chose as his first deputy an uneducated goldsmith, which caused controversy with his own students who didn't uh, appreciate his lack of education. So he, he clearly turned away from, from that kind of approach. So um, I think that uh, these, these show some of the aspects, okay, in time, of, um, of Rumi and the Persian that I, I wanted to uh, share with you. 
So what about um, in English? Do we see any of these aspects in translation? And are, are they actually part of what makes Rumi attractive to um, readers? So when it comes to accessibility, I feel like the popular translations of Barks have got it right and the academicians have got it wrong, personally. Because one of the reasons I say this is that um, I, had, I was given Nicholson's translation and commentary when I was 17 or 18 um, by my landlady at the time in Bristol, in England. I was brought up in Britain. And uh, she said she got it in a jumble sale in Glasgow for 50 pence. Uh, it's like several volumes, actually. It's a pretty good deal. And uh, I'd had a dream that I was gonna, a hand gave me Rumi's Masnavi about a year, probably less than a year before then. So I thought, this is my dream. And I had this book, so I had them in my top shelf in my uh, dorm room in the University of Manchester. And I, but it was so frustrating because I couldn't read much into it. I found it really difficult to read because Nicholson's translation, inevitably we all translate people in our own image unconsciously. And he's a very philologist, academician. He translated Rumi like a complicated thinker with so many parentheses and uh, turgid prose that for me it was unreadable and I know a lot of people find it difficult. And then when I went to study Persian uh, in the Middle Eastern Studies Department in Manchester, I was so happy in the second year we read Rumi. Rumi's one of the simpler poets to read. He's not a complicated poet. You read Hafez in the third year and Nezami in the fourth year. But Rumi is, is, is not at all like that. He's more like the kind of popular uh, free verse style that you, that, that like the Coleman Barks have made into a best-selling phenomenon. So I think in terms of accessibility and directness, that's something that, that, that they have more than the academicians. Um, and being an academician myself, I, you know, I need to say that Rumi turned away from that kind of lifestyle. So he's probably turning in his grave to think that academicians are claiming that we know best about Rumi when, when he himself rejected that way. Um, experimental innovations. You could argue that you know, writing, translating Rumi in a kind of free verse Walt Whitman style is an experimental innovation. And it's also designed to make it more appealing to the readership, just like Rumi's experiments were designed to make it more accessible and impactful to the readership. So there's something you, you could say that in terms of looking at the issues of form at, at the moment. Um, and then, of course, the message is, is important. And the message of Rumi is, you know, what, what I say is that uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that it's radical, because he's making, the form is also a sign of the content, and he's making so many radical subversions. It would be like expecting a punk rock song to be about ironing handkerchiefs. It's just not going to happen. Of course, if somebody is writing a poem and he's breaking all the rules of, of prosody, you're going to ex expect that it's going to be something radical in the message. We've seen the Hajj poem, the you are, you are yes, you are the light and, and uh, you are grace, but you're also the, the pot and the water and the poison and sugar, you know, mundane things as well as sublime things. And, um, oh, I got it here now. So there's another ghazal that uh, often goes unnoticed. Um, this is a, a ghazal where it repeats nearly every line, didn't I say, magof Um But that's not actually the, in the Persian, that's not the rhyme at the, at the ending. The rhyme is radif uh, etmanam. Um, so uh, there's so much repetition here as a result. It's not, the, it's, it's addition to the rhyme, you have this phrase repeated. So I'm going to read it through and just see who you think the speaker is meant to be. Didn't I say, don't go there, for I'm your acquaintance today. I am the fountain of light in this mirage of decay. 
Even if in rage you stay away for decades, since I'm your ending, you'll come back to me one day. Didn't I say, don't be content with this world's form, for I am the maker of your contentment's home? Didn't I say, I am the sea, you are one fish, don't go on dry land, for I'm the clear sea? Didn't I say, don't head to the snare like birds do, when I give you flight, and I'm your feet and wings too? Didn't I say, they will waylay you and make you cold, but I'm your desire's fire and warmth? Didn't I say, they will put ugly things in you, so you'll forget I'm the source of purity in you? Didn't I say, don't ask of the servant's affairs, origins, when I'm the designing creator beyond directions? If you have a lamp-like heart, learn the road to home, and if you're godlike, know that I'm your Lord. The speaker is God. Many people just don't want to see it, and they will try everything. The speaker is God, but Rumi knew that people might not want to see it because it's such a subversion that in the last line, and if you're godlike, know that I'm your Lord, he signs off as God. Twice for good measure, he mentions Khoda. Um, the style of Persian poetry is to use the, the poet's name somehow within the, the final verse, and it's, it's, it's just not a coincidence. Um, so um, that radicalness of message is something that um, which, you know, shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and that closeness to God is something that's celebrated in Rumi's poetry, I think, in translation as well, God's imminence and uh, uh, almost uh, tangible presence uh, in our lives. In fact, the most quoted verse in, it's the last I'm going to sort of uh, discuss here, the most quoted verse in America today um, and um, is uh, usually the first two lines of this. Apparently Brad Pitt has a tattoo of it as well, first two lines. You know, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So you have here, in addition to a meeting and the idea that each other doesn't make sense, it refers to mystical experience being beyond what one can grasp intellectually or even expressed with language. Which, and that's all part of the popular appeal of Rumi. This is the most quoted verse in America, especially in, in weddings, I should say. And I think that's where there is, there is an issue, because um, we're, uh, I feel we're just telling me about this meme about uh, Rumi mm. uh, writing about God, not your boyfriend, or in this case, you know, your fiance or soon-to-be husband or bride, that um, that's one aspect that it's, is uh, um, in the translation tends to sway in that direction. And Coleman Barks has admitted it. He's on record, you can find it on the internet, as saying he feels that he might have over-sexualized Rumi in some of his early translations. Because every translator, we're all unconsciously somehow um, projecting something from ourselves. And um, just meeting in each other becomes about two people, and you have this lying in the grass situation. Um, but the religious context that Rumi took for granted is deliberately removed from a lot of the poetry. And it's, it's deliberate because Barks wants to, the reader to have, have, be impacted by it and uh, for it to make sense to them. And I think his feeling is that details about uh, Rumi's religion in the Islamic context are not accessible to the re most readers in English. So they will need some notes and explanations. And also most of the readers of this kind of spiritual poetry in North America and probably here as well, they don't want to see the word God. So often it's God is translated as the presence or something like that um, because it's for making an impact on the, on the reader. 
some people, you know, there have been rich things written about it suggesting that there's something um, Islamophobic ab about it. I, I genuinely think Coleman Barks has been doing it because of, uh, in religion, religion in general, and God in general is not included in the, in the, in the poetry. Um, there are other, definitely there's a knock-on effect, and a lot of people um, do not um, associate Rumi with Islam, which is obvious because when there was so much rise in Islamophobia in North America after 9-11, I was, I was there in Manhattan 9-11, um, Rumi's popularity was not affected in, in the slightest. Uh, and the people were pointed, it was pointed out that Rumi was, you know, from uh, you know, the place that you're about to invade on a Muslim origin. Um, some people were, were shocked and uh, even disappointed. Uh, I remember being at Thanksgiving dinner in America and people were, they almost couldn't eat their food when they found out. They were, they were so shocked. And I was, <laughs> I was glad that they, they, uh, they learned because I mean, it was one of the things that. Uh, was a driving force to, to do this work is to put it in context and people see that something that is so impactful in their lives comes from an Islamic context. And Muslims have the same kind of aspirations and experiences and, and uh, feelings as anybody else rather than the, the usual uh, stereotypes that get bandied around. In the original version of this poem, oh, it's, it's there already, um, the term is that uh, Barks translated as wrongdoing and rightdoing um, they're not actually the problem here. In, in, in the original, actually, it's kufr and Islam. It's unbelief and Islam. So it's beyond unbelief and Islam um, in the original. Um, but it's the, the later lines that are deviating from what Rumi is, is writing about. <laughs> because it's, it's not lying down. <coughs> the literally, in Persian, it's putting the head to the ground, which is, or you just say, it's prostration. So when, and it's the RF, the mystic, who's doing it. So it's nothing to do with a couple. Uh, when the mystic reaches it, they put their head down to the ground, they, the Muslim position of prostration in the Muslim prayer, because this is beyond Islam, unbelief, and even put their locality. It's even beyond jar, space. Uh, it's place, it's beyond uh, everything. So, you know, I think, just to, just to wrap up, although Bach's translation here, and it's his most popular translation of all, it misses out and it misunderstands part of it, you can still say the overall point about closeness um, to the point of being difficult to tell apart is, is the same in poems, even though another human, human being is, is brought in in this, in this example. Um, so I don't know if I'm being overgenerous, but I'd like to think that the Rumi that's so popular in English is not a total reinvention of the original, um, even if the love that he expresses is assumed often mistakenly to be to another human being. And it's, it's complicated by the fact that Shams Tabrizi is his mentor, another human being, who's also the manifestation of the divine. And Rumi does, he, has, he does write, Shams is my god. And which has, which there it is a kind of a play, because it's the name of a person, also it's the sun, it's a symbol for God, and he's kind of taking advantage of that, um, in that uh, um, there, there the ambiguity actually, actually works for him. But he, in Sufism, the the person who has become annihilated in God becomes the complete manifestation of God. So, but it's not a romantic uh, partner like in weddings this, this poem is used. So to conclude, um, answers are not at all, I think, not at all hard to find within Rumi's own poetic innovations for the question of why Rumi among all the Sufi poets should have become so popular. You can, it, is, it is difficult to, to find an answer for that for someone like Khayyam. It doesn't make sense. It's all to do with the reinvention of the translator. Clearly, 
in his case. But with Rumi, I think there, there are some clear reasons why. That desire to communicate directly, explicitly, make an immediate impact, eliminate distances and barriers, like we saw with the beginning of the Masnavi and the direct address of, of readers in, in his Ghazals, to move people beyond an intellectual level, a total lack of interest in uh, stimulating people intellectually for hours, and instead wanting to make a direct impact in the gut in, for somebody rather than um, in their brain. Um, these things um, hopefully make it uh, um, for us actually it would be difficult to see how the popular translations of poetry would have become so successful uh, without these being in the original. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, thank you very much, Javed, for that. Before we, um, before we just go over to some questions, a quick question, a quick point. If you just want to tell us a little bit about your work as well with regards to Rumi, and, and what does it mean for you after all these years of delving into him? What, what's your take then on Rumi, your personal take, rather than some of the work that you're talking about, other people's work, etc. So if you just tell us a little bit about your work and actually what, what, what you take away with regards to the work of Rumi. Right, it's a big <laughs> question. So you know, my, my interest in Rumi, I, I kind of uh, mentioned in my talk, it was, uh, I first, when I was brought up in England and I was uh, reading what was available on Sufism as a teenager, Idris Shah mostly, in England at that time, and I came, I must have come across the mass, maybe otherwise I wouldn't have had the, the, that dream that came out of the blue. Um, and so it always had this place, but then it wasn't um, um, until I you know, grew older and appreciated a bit more that, that I started working. And actually, it was related to, we're talking about my advisor who, who died mm. the, the day after I finished my dissertation on cancer. He was, he was dying at that time. But uh, we were completing an anthology that he'd started. And he had been the advisor of Dick Davis, the translator of Compass of the Birds, Penguin Classic, and he'd always said that that's the way a Masnavi poem should be translated. Because that is a classic, isn't it? Yeah. And that's a high bar. Mm. He, Dick Davis set the bar. I mean, many people would say he was the greatest translator of, of Persian that there has ever been. He was, he's a poet before he went to Iran and learned Persian. My advisor Calder taught him the alphabet in Iran. He was teaching English in Iran at the time. And then he, after the revolution, he came out, well, I might have do a PhD, and became, he became a professor. Um, so, um, yeah, so that, that we, doing it the way that I did was really because we were doing something to honor uh, our advisor that, who died, a couple of us working on this, and so I did it that way, and people said, you should do the whole thing. This is the way it should be done, and it wasn't really my original idea, it was my advisor. People often say, well, well you, know, you must have read a lot of rhyming poetry, and to be honest, I didn't. And when I was a teenager, I didn't really, was not really into writing poetry. And the only thing I can think of is that I had memorized the 1960s lyrics of Bob Dylan when I was a teenager. And that must have had an impact. That's the only thing I can think of when it comes to rhyming. <laughs> Somewhere it was, it was in there to, to uh, uh, come out again and doing a translation this way. When, but, but really, it was Norman who, uh, uh, Norman Calder, who uh, had I remembered what he'd said, that it needs to be done that way. Uh, Rumi himself. Um, you know, he, he, he's somebody that uh, experienced both the scholarship, world of scholarship, and what's beyond it. And I suppose that's how I relate to him, because you know, I'm, an, I'm an academician, um, but also um, 
you know, I mentioned I had that, that degree, but you know, you have experiences that are beyond the knowledge of academia. You see the limitations of academia. And that happened actually relatively early in my career. I was working at a prestigious encyclopedia at, uni at uh, Columbia University at the time of 9-11. That's why I was in Manhattan. And um, the, um, I kind of saw some of the limitations and ego and things like there's too much going on there. Uh, and uh, um, I found that uh, much more inspiring the, the way of the, the mystics. So it was, a, it was a great escape for me to be working with a mystic poet. But I ended up making a, you know, that was a time when in America, to be honest, nothing to do with me, in America people were hiring in religion departments for an Islam mm. person because they didn't have many. Yes. And the religion department, many of the people hiring the committee, they didn't really know much about Islam, but they knew something about Sufism. And they knew about Rumi. And so I think that helped me get, get my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> to be honest with you, it wasn't anything to do with anything I was doing in particular, but, but I, um, they understood what I was doing, and they were all in a rush to hire somebody. Yeah. And I know, um, I, I think he's talking now, Reza is here, Reza Aslan, yeah. and it was, he probably told you the same story with him. He was in Iowa, and he was the only person in the whole state they could get on radio to talk about Islam. And so that's really how he got into this. Otherwise, he was doing the Iowa creative writing course on the way to becoming a novelist or something. <laughs> it sort of completely uh, went on a different tra trajectory. And that's, that's kind of what happened. And Rumi, to you now? Yeah, I mean, he's, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. It's a labor of love. You, you, I get so much out of reading him, so I can't, I'm very lucky to be working with him, reading with him. He's always uplifting. He's very positive. A lot of actual Persian poets, especially the Ghazal poetry, it's all about, it's about suffering in love and unrequited love. And Rumi is, is more uplifting and positive about the, the possibility of hope, getting up again, trying again, and th that closeness, imminence of the divine, the, the only thing keeping you apart is yourself. You're the problem, um, and your imagination of being uh, distant from the divine. That, that's, that's the only thing. And that um, um, enthusiasm he has and for everybody to, to connect and to, to benefit from it, I, that, that I find uh, really uh, very therapeutic, you could say. Well, we've got some time for some therapy now as well, actually, with some questions. Mm -hmm. um, anybody want to be the first person to put their hand up and ask a question? <laughs> Usually, ah, I've got somebody here down at the front. Uh, Just wait for the microphone if that's okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, and thank you for um, talking about your um, sort of family experience as well. Um, I've got an Urdu translation here. Um, and the thing about the Urdu translation is I find that it's very close to the Farsi. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, you know, really engage with it. But the question I wanted to ask you is, um, Rumi is, you know, he, he does um, assume that the reader has got certain knowledges and certain behaviors, doesn't he? So does, do you think that the Western mind can just understand Rumi, or does it need to, for example, learn about, um, you know, Islam, Farsi, um, how, or, or live in Iran or Pakistan or other places before they can really grasp what Rumi means? Right. Well, there's a famous story in Rumi's discourses about how he went to the, the city of Tokat, which is a Christian city, and they were Greek speaking, and uh, he preached to them. And when they got home, his disciples said, why were you even bothering? Even Muslims find it difficult to understand what you say. And then he said, didn't you see how they were moved to tears? 
And then he starts off by giving the analogy of you know, different paths of a mountain, different roads to the Hajj. And then he says that actually um, these different uh, traditions, it's like a, a tank of water and the water inside the tank is undifferentiated and you can't tell apart one drop from another. But the faucets, once it comes out of a faucet and takes a certain form and becomes congealed, then you can see the difference. Then you see differences. So as, long as, as, as soon as we start speaking in our own different languages and different ways of expressing it, then we start finding differences and disputes. But actually, in the tank, the water is the same. So, so I think Rumi would have been very um, in favor of um, connecting beyond beyond Muslims. There, there's there's evidence in his, in his own traditions writings and, and his own writings also in the Masnavi. He he has many universalist. Uh, um, stories and messages. Um, what I think is, um, you, you make a very valid point, his immediate audience were his former students in the madrasa. But he was not teaching them madrasa, sort of Islamic law and theology, he was trying to teach them what he learned from Shams Tabrizi. But the language that they spoke was the language of the madrasa. Mm -hmm. So his Masnavi has many times more quotes of the Quran and hadith of the Prophet Muhammad than any other Masnavi poem, and also references to Islamic law but he uses them in a, in a subversive way. So for instance, the reference to Islamic law, in Islamic law, if, if it's water of a, of a certain size, it won't be polluted, and you can still use it to clean yourself before prayer. It has to be a certain size before it can be polluted by something dropping into it. So he says, Shams Tertabriz drank wine, people complain about it, he says, yeah, he's an ocean, a bit of wine is not gonna pollute him. You, you're just a little puddle, you can't drink wine. Um, and then he quotes the, the, in Arabic, the. The, the Islamic law rule about the amount of water to stay pure. Um, so he uses this thing subversively. He has all the knowledge, he's got all the answers, but he uses it in a, uh, in a very uh, subversive way. So I, I think it's, you're right that it's, there are a lot of references in, in the Masnavi that um, you need explanations for. So that's why in my version I write, I do every verse and I write, I have notes to explain these allusions. You know, Common Barks, because he doesn't want to, he wants to fuse something beautiful, and he succeeded in fusing something beautiful and impactful. He doesn't want to have notes for the poetry, or extensive notes. And um, he uh, um, will translate selectively, so he'll just miss out those complicated verses. Mm. It's all selective. So, so uh, what I've tried to do is to, to do, I think, I think we're in the same line, to show um, that context and that background that he's using through notes, uh, but it's important to remember that he's not using those references to make people become like seminary students. He was trying to move the seminary students to a, a different level, and that was the language that they spoke. So if you speak a different language but with the same ultimate aim, I don't think he'd necessarily be too, too much against it, like when he went to the Greek-speaking people. Um, well, is there a danger, I suppose, of it being, it's a bit like yoga, mm -hmm. yoga taken away from, you know, ancient Indian kind of faith mm -hmm. and tradition is an exercise. Mm -hmm. It's not what it's really meant to be. Yeah. Is there a kind of danger that the popularism of Rumi, which has become, you know, on social media or whatever, or, you know, actors having it tattooed on their arms and it might not be the right description, etc. Is, is there a danger that actually the, the shallowness of what people, the gen, in, in mm -hmm. popular sense of following, isn't necessarily the the truth or the light or whatever. Yeah, I, you're definitely right, especially if it's seen purely as a romantic thing. 
that's mm. that's 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 certainly not hence the meme me. you know it, yeah. my, it, this you know my poetry is about my relationship yeah. with god not about your boyfriend not calling yeah. you back yeah um but that's what people take of it though now don't they but, but the, in, in a, the average in in terms of popularism maybe i know that there is a large readership who are interested in spirituality mm. and they they in america we call it uh, spiritual but not religious and for them their ultimate uh, leader in the past is Rumi. They see him as spiritual, but but not religious. Um, so if they're looking at it for the spiritual message, um, then you know, if you, and he gets some benefit from it, I don't think he would necessarily be be too uh, um, far against it. It's a shame that they uh, don't follow the specific tradition of Rumi and don't realize that he followed a specific Sufi path. Mm. And I think that uh, people who who look at it in more get moved by it and want to look in more detail, they, they find that out. It's kind of the first impact is, is this, like I get students to come in class and what have you, you've been exposed to, they come and they, they recite a verse, often they'll be in tears because the verses are really impactful. People really love the Coleman Box translations. You, you know, you've got to give them credit for that. Um, but uh, once, by the time they finish the course, they can go back to what they like reading, but they've got this enriched view of it and they, they can put it in context and have an awareness of, of what they're missing. Um, and uh, so I think, I think it's a, people who are serious want to learn more. So they came to my course, or they, or they read more books about Rumi, or they decide to read something that's not a selection, um, uh, which, has, which has notes and background. Um, so I think, yeah, you're, you're right. If it's just, if all we had was the, the best-selling and people were reading it as a romantic uh, poetry, then yeah, they've totally misunderstood Rumi. Because you can get a Rumi quote of the day every day from, on, on social media, yeah. and I follow that site. I'm not, sure how, I'm not sure how many of them are correct as well, to tell you the truth, but the fact of the matter is we, a lot of us follow it and necessarily, not, not necessarily know what we're looking yeah. at. Just but you're following it, so you, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. you know about the background. I know, and, and I know about that. That's how that's shallow the, I am. No, that's yeah. the best combination, because <laughs> yeah. you know what's between the lines. Yeah. I think, I think that, that's, that's that how it works scheme? best. Well, it's an entry-level drug, isn't it, in yeah. a sense? That the social media thing is the entry-level. That's what you're hoping. That's the entry-level drug that will take you on a journey which will effectively get you to the, the real meaning, which is your book. Right, yeah. <laughs> or, 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 you know, to, you, know to, 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 you, can, you can read the popular stuff again with a new understanding. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think it, it can work. You know, Box got into this uh, not because of a love affair, but because of a Sri Lankan Sufi teacher. He Baba Muhaydin, Philadelphia. Mm. They still have his, his mosque there, and his shrine is one of the first Muslim shrines in North America. That was his, his teacher. So he was, in some way, uh, trying to present this as uh, mm. uh, true to Baba Muhaydin's uh, uh, teachings. Um, so they're, you know, and it's mostly his that you'll be getting in your social media, although there are many imitators who are not yeah. as good and, even, and don't even uh, try to. He tries hard to uh, faithfully render previous English translations by academicians like Nicholson and, and Arbery. Um, so there is some relation to the person eventually. Um, but, um, but yeah, you're, I think that the, the way that you do it is work, works best having that background, being able to read between the lines. And when you read the poem that comes, yeah. you put, if it has an impact on you, it's because you combine it with what you know yeah. that it's meant to be. Uh, whereas somebody who doesn't have the background, maybe they're still thinking about their girlfriend. I don't know. <laughs> if it works, it works. Right? <laughs> Do you have any more questions? Sorry, that lady over there. Yeah. Just wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Um, hi, it's it's really lovely to see you and 
person and to hear you speak. Um, there's a group of us who are studying the Mathnavi together, which is really an incredible process because with the different perspectives, it's like layers and layers of it mm -hmm. get revealed. And if I'm reading it by myself, it just doesn't make the same sense. Um, and every time I'm astounded by the depth and the beauty of what he's saying and the mercy really in the relationship with Allah and all the convolutions mm -hmm. that get in the way of us really seeing things for what they really are. Mm -hmm. So I think it's had a, a big impact on all of us and I might have missed this because I came in late, but I just wanted to ask you if you could say something more about the personal impact on you of um, doing this translation because it's such an intimate thing to be doing that you get to know um, Mevlana in a very intimate way. So I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, maybe I can, I can tell you one, uh, so it's, it's quite a lot I could say. So when I was doing book one, I would um, meet weekly with a, a friend at a sushi restaurant in the Greenwich Village in New York. And um, I was about three quarters of the way through and I, and I said, I think, you know, I'm getting to the climax of book one. And I'm doing it in order. And um, what Rumi does in book one is after, he, he's taking you on this roller coaster ride. So you have these amazing stories like the guest who brings a mirror to Joseph, you know, the lover who knocks on the beloved's door and says, It is you. Those, those, those stories suddenly accumulate about three quarters of the way through. But then suddenly you, the roller coaster goes right down again. And then you have the story of uh, the person who thought he was a prophet because it reflected on him and uh, Bil'am, the sage who fell through arrogance, Satan's pride. And uh, it really uh, impacted me, this sense of, the false sense of security that, he, he, that you have and that there's a long way there is still to go. And uh, recently, I was doing, when I finished book five, something similar is going on. This is the penultimate volume. And uh, it's, a lot of it is to do with um, the remaining hidden uh, attachments people have. Um, it's also famous for having all this, the, the sexual stories. And I think that is a hidden attachment a lot of people have. It's definitely hidden in all the stories people are trying to hide it. Um, that the, the different uh, sexual activities they're getting on, on with, uh, which uh, they don't want people to know about. Uh, and then while you have as the foil, the story of somebody who has a, a locked closet and everybody's suspicious he's hiding something important there, and he's corrupt, and actually, it's his humble attire from when he was a shepherd. And he just wanted to remember his humble origins. So I think that volume is a kind of, again, that it's that roller coaster. It's reminding people that there's a long way to go, and these people still have hidden problems. And I'm, in the sixth volume, we're going to get to the the actual climax. So I, it's it's like following a path with Rumi. You can't help but uh, um, find a learning experience. That there were many Sufi teachers that came to England and. And they would say that um, um, if I'm not here, read the Matnavi. And uh, it's, it's, it's written to guide people. Some people said to me, oh, why don't you write a commentary on the Matnavi? And I was thinking, well, Rumi gives you a com running commentary. He, he, as soon as what I'm translating, if there's a verse that I'm unclear about, I just read the next few verses. And he gives you three more analogies and he explains what he's trying to say. There's never been a re reason for me to look up a commentary. And if I, most of the commentaries were written with a view to interpret everything as Ibn Arabi, which I don't think is accurate anyway. Um, because very soon after Rumi died, Ibn Arabi's ideas came to dominate uh, Sufi thought. 
Um, so yeah, he's, he's, he's like a, a guide to anybody who's, who's reading it. He takes you by the hand, and he doesn't want to um, let you intellectualize it, but rather just uh, take you on the ride with him. And it's some hell of a ride. Um, that, that's, that's really you know, what, what I get out of it, I think. So you said that you've got one more book. Yeah. yeah. Then what? That's a good question. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll, I've asked well, then, it now. Then, you I can would, then I would need to write uh, something more analytical. I've been, yeah, I'm supposed to write a, a one-volume book on, on Rumi. There is a great book, a very well-researched book, uh, the late Franklin Lewis, who died recently, a year ago. Uh, but it's 800 pages. Right. Even for my undergraduate students, it's not fair to give them that as a textbook for the course. Um, so something that's more like 300 pages could be used as a, for a course on Rumi. And uh, I've, been, you know, I've been teaching a course on Rumi for a long time using my own materials. So I think that that's probably the next step. And then some, some more analytical works on, um, on his uh, masculinity after having spent so much time on it, I think. Do you ever wake up thinking, oh, get out, go away, Rumi. I'm sick of this mass media and the light. I mean, what, what else would you like to do? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, you know, I've been working a bit on, on, on Hafez as well. I do, yeah. I do have... Uh, a bit of Hafez on the uh, side. For, yeah, yes. a bit of, bit of Hafez on the side for relief, definitely. Um, but um, it's become a calling. You know, I, I think that's what, the, what you were trying to get to. It's become a calling, hasn't it? This has yeah, become a. Just, this is your legacy. This you know, is I, it. I mentioned you're living behind one hell of a legacy. Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully people benefit from it. But I feel it's a weird situation because you have a dream that has an impact. When I had the dream, my mother was in Saudi Arabia, yeah. and I wrote to her to say I had this dream. I really, she kept my letters in those old folded envelope blue things we had. She, uh, I obviously reading it. I thought I was going to get this book. But how, when I was 16, 17, I, I don't know. And then when I started translating, I'd forgotten about Dream, to be honest, because of that, that landlady gave me those books mm. that didn't really impact me. And then when I got in the second volume, I remembered it. I, and then my mom confirmed and got her letters out. And then, um, then I thought, oh my God, in the dream, the hand just handed me one book. The master was like, what if I can't finish volume two? <laughs> but since I did get through to it, I thought, well, I, meant to, I have to finish this. Yeah. This is, what, this is what I'm here for. Whatever else I do is a bonus. Well, I think we're all, <laughs> I think we're all very grateful that you are here to, to give us this conversation. So thank you. I think we should have a round of applause for the professor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2020.